This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. To find out more, visit the support tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1703, Farming for Future Generations. David Bilbrey of EcoThinkIt.com returns with this conversation, recorded at the 2016 Prairie Festival, the 40th celebration of the Land Institute. In this interview, he speaks with Fred Kirschman, a national and international leader in sustainable agriculture. Fred also shares an appointment as Distinguished Fellow for the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State University and is president of Stone Barnes Center for Food and Agriculture in Portanico Hills, New York. In addition to all that work, Fred also continues to manage his family's 1,800-acre certified organic farm in North Dakota. As this episode was recorded live, David and Fred began their conversation talking about Fred's first exposure to organic agriculture in the 1960s by one of his university students at the time, who really encouraged Fred to investigate the ways that organic agriculture was helping the regeneration of the soil. After seeing this firsthand, where the soil was dark, rich, and spongy under organic methods, but then kind of dry and dusty under what we would think of as modern agriculture, we pick up with David and Fred a few minutes into their conversation as Fred shares his decision to convert to organic agriculture, continuing on the recommendation of his student. Enjoy this conversation with Fred Kirschman and David Bilbrey, and I'll join you again afterwards. What year was it that you saw that example of organic versus conventional agriculture? Yeah, well, that would have been around that 1969, 1970, yeah, yeah. So 1976 and so he was farming out there so I contacted him and I said so I'm going to go back to convert our farm in North Dakota what do I do and uh, so you know he shared with me some of the basic principles and he said one of the main things you got to do is to get a crop rotation I said so what kind of crop rotation do I do he said I'm farming in Nebraska you're in North Dakota that you got to figure that out for yourself <laughs> so uh, you know I decided the first year to do I think we did about a third of our acreage uh, we converted it to organics I wanted to experiment with it and then that was a kind of a great year for growing crops and everything worked out really well so I thought well this is not a big problem <laughs> and so so uh, then I decided to convert the whole farm and uh, that was a mistake because uh, you know, uh, I didn't have a good sense about the kinds of crops to put in the rotation, etc. Mm-hmm. We started to have weed problems, etc. Uh, so then I had to really, you know, bore down and and figure out how to how to really make this work. And uh, it took about three years then to really get through the transition and to get the right kind of crop rotations going that uh, control the weeds. So what were the problems that arose that surprised you? Well, weed, weed problems primarily, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what advice would you give to somebody who wanted to convert their farm? Well, uh, the main thing is, uh, I always say, you know, find a farmer who's already farming in your ecological neighborhood and learn from them the details, you know, that, mm-hmm. uh, that work best. And uh, that's, the, that's the best kind of advice to get, you know. Okay. And, and fortunately now, we have sustainable agriculture movements, you know, all across the country. And uh, so uh, 
there's very few places that a farmer in the United States now would want to convert to organic, where there wouldn't be some farmers, you know, in his uh, in his ecological neighborhood. Quite a few more resources than there used right, to be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the themes that keeps coming up is relocalization and restoring the small farm yeah. and uh, restoring the the countryside. What do you think some of the key things are to doing that, getting more small farmers? Well, it's the, the, the key thing around that, from my perspective, is uh, you know we have to do this in terms of relationships. Farmers can't just do this all on their own because there has to be markets that support what they want to do uh, or feel they need to do. And you know there are a lot of resources within communities. This is one of the one of the neat things that starting to emerge now. And John Takara has written about this quite extensively in a new book that he just came out with this last November uh, called How to Thrive in the Next Economy. And he writes this book based on his travels around the world. And one of the things that he discovered is that what he calls, the term that he uses, borrows, which I think first started to appear in the literature in the 1970s, the concept of Mm bioregionalism, that what's happening around the world now is people coming together in their own bioregions and recognizing that the industrial economy is not going to be functioning anymore. And so they're starting to develop their own bioregional economy, which is based on the local resources within their own communities. And I I love this term. He said the concept of growth for these communities changes from economic growth to growth as a regeneration of life on Earth. (laughs) That's the concept of growth. But these are about whole economies, not just, I mean, and, and of course, agriculture and food systems are a critical part of that, but they're a part of this new economy. But the important thing about it is that everybody in those neighborhoods are all working together to make this transition into the into a future economy uh, that they can thrive in. Is that a deeper connection that's happening than what's happening in the pre-industrial economy or even just the early, early 20th century? Because because well, of communication, maybe there's more ability for people to cooperate and help each other, or is it just yeah, a restoration? Yeah, yeah, and that? and most of these most of these uh, bioregional economies uh, that Takara talks about are happening in the developing world, not in the developed world. Mm-hmm. Well, there are some early examples in the developed world too, and I would I would argue that what's you know happening here at the Land Institute is creating a vision for that kind of uh, you know a post-industrial economy as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll talk about this a little bit later this morning, but I think that uh, the kinds of changes, the kinds of cultural changes which need to take place uh, are probably not going to take place until... Uh, the industrial economy just doesn't function anymore, right. and because that's what and this is happening more quickly in the developing world than in the developed world. So that's why the, that's why these bioregional economies are emerging more. They have the immediate need. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I see a similar thing even happening in urban urban agriculture. A lot of the stuff that's happening with permaculture yeah. projects, and different stuff, are in in the the really bad neighborhoods because land's really cheap and yeah. people yeah. need yeah. need solutions. And yeah. So. Yeah. But here's the other thing that's going to drive this is that, you know, our industrial economy, uh, which, you know, had really got its its start in the in the Enlightenment period where we saw ourselves as separate from nature and our responsibility to control nature. And then uh, with the evolution of uh, fossil fuels and particularly uh, petroleum, 
that provided the cheap energy uh, to make the industrial economy function. But the industrial economy is entirely based on uh, an input-intensive system. So everything that we do in the industrial economy comes from external inputs that we bring into the economy. And, and, and of course, uh, uh, fossil fuels, which is stored concentrated energy is a critical part of that but there are also the minerals and fossil water you know all these resources which led us to this concept that uh, unlimited economic growth was always possible right because mm-hmm. we were going to have all these inputs but we're now rapidly reaching a point where these inputs are becoming depleted and as they become depleted they're going to become more expensive and uh, you know phosphorus is a good example uh, phosphorus of course primarily comes uh, the, the raw material material, minerals uh, that are the input for that are rock phosphate. There are only four countries that still have rock phosphate reserves, and the United States is one of them. Uh, And all of the data that I've seen, at the rate that we're extracting the rock phosphorus to make the phosphorus, uh, will only last at most for another 20 years. Some argue probably no more than 10 years. Well, you know, Phosphorus costs for farmers have already gone up. In the 1960s, farmers were buying phosphorus for about $60 a ton. Now it's $700 a ton. Well, as it, as it becomes more and more depleted, and it's going to be require more uh, energy to extract the remaining rock phosphate and turn it into phosphorus. You know, it would not be hard to imagine uh, phosphorus reaching $2,500 a ton in 10 or 15 years. So can it still work then? See, that's when the the pressure is going to be on to to evolve into the new economy, which is going to be based more on the concept of uh, regeneration and resilience rather than maximum efficient production for short-term economic return, which is what the industrial economy mm-hmm. operates on. So we're not it's not just peak oil that we need to worry about. That's right. Peak phosphorus. No one's talking yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. Or as Richard Heinberg says, peak everything. Peak everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, well, and... I guess water is increasingly an yeah. issue as well. Yeah, yeah. and he, here we are in Kansas, and uh, which gets uh, most of its irrigation water from the Ogallala Aquifer, and uh, we've been draining down the, o- the Ogallala Aquifer is this fossil water, and we've been draining it down at a rate that uh, uh, most projections are that it will only have irrigation water available for maybe another 20 years, and maybe not even more than 10 years. So we need an agriculture that can work off of rainwater. That's basically. right. Yeah. And the key to that is going to be restoring the biological health of soil <laughs> right. and and diversity. You can't you can't you can't raise monocultures with a lot of inputs when you don't have all the inputs. Yeah. So, uh, what's fossil water? That's the first time I've heard that term. Well, fossil water is uh, water that has accumulated in uh, certain aquifers, mm-hmm. uh, going back all the way to the ice age, and. Uh, that water is stored there, uh, and it's the water. The the aquifers will continue to be. Some water will continue to be restored, but it's at a very very slow rate. So if you're extracting it faster than it can restore, which we which you, if you use it at all for irrigation, you're doing that. So you draw down those uh, those uh, water resources over a period of time. And that's happening through through. Irrigation, irrigation wells and stuff like. I mean, you're yeah. talking about going down yeah. into the aquifer. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Seventy okay. percent of our freshwater resources on the planet are used just for agriculture irrigation, 
And one of the reasons that we use that much water is because we haven't paid attention to the biological health of soil. So, we, so you know, most of our soils in industrial agriculture uh, only absorb a half inch of rainwater an hour before this rainwater starts to run off. It doesn't. It doesn't absorb. Now, if you restore the biological health of soil, even with cover crops for a period of seven to eight years, the soil begins to absorb eight inches of rainwater an hour. So As opposed to, what, what is it without that? Half inch. Half inch to right. eight inches, wow. Yeah. Just so cover you, crops. That's right. So if you have biologically healthy soil and you're absorbing eight inches of rainwater an hour, then you have much more moisture you, you don't lose the moisture. It goes into the soil and gets stored in the soil. Your plant roots tend to go deeper into the soil, so they will uh, have more access to uh, moisture during drought periods. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, to be storing the biological health of soil is absolutely critical to our future. So um, historically, like the last thousands of years, uh, are there examples of this irrigation abuse of water I mean obviously there's examples of monocultures but is there examples of where that happened and then we can see what happened as a result of that that dependence well there's you know, again when you when you go back historically there's, there's a lot of things to uh, you know our uh, uh, what Ernest Shusky called the neocaloric era which is uh, an era where uh, the question which he asks in his book, uh, Culture and Agriculture, is how have you, we humans fed ourselves ever since we've been on the planet? And he argues that for the first 190,000 years, and when we evolved on the planet, we fed ourselves as, as hunter-gatherers, so we were not food producers, we were simply food collectors. Uh, but then we entered that Neolithic period about 10,000 years ago where we started to do agriculture. But the primary agriculture that we did for those first 10,000 years uh, was what he calls uh, a slash-and-burn agriculture. Mm. In other words, uh, uh, we would uh, cut down some of the perennials that nature was doing, perennial grasses or perennial trees, and burn that, those perennials. And then that ash, plus the natural fertility in the soil, we could grow, uh, produce you know, quite a bit of food for the first three or four or five years but then it would deplete the soil and then we'd slash and burn a new place and then probably 12, 15 years later we could go back to that original spot and grow for another year or two and then we'd go out to another place I didn't realize slash and burn was that uh, ancient yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> okay yeah, but then he says that it wasn't until the early 1900s that we entered this third era of feeding ourselves, which he called the neocaloric era because it's entirely based on old calories. That is, they're non-renewable, non-renewable resources like fossil fuels and rock phosphate, uh, fossil water, and uh, so uh, he argues that uh, the big challenge in front of us is now is what 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 kind of food system are we going to design for the post-neocaloric era? And that's really, we're very close at, right now at the point where we have to make that transition because we've, uh, we're using up these, uh, these non-renewable resources. Do you have any examples of regenerative agriculture systems from the past? That we could well, there, there there are a few, uh, you know, like uh, F. H. King has these uh, stories of uh, farmers of forty generations, and uh, there's so, so there have been some examples along the way uh, where farmers, uh, you know, were doing more. You know, the other thing here that's important in this is that Eustace von Liebig 
who was a brilliant German scientist who developed the discipline of organic chemistry, that there were certain chemicals that we could use to accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. And then in 1840, he applied those principles to agriculture. And he came up with this concept of the law of the minimum. How do you get the maximum output for the minimum input? And he came up with the NPK, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash. You do those three things and you get this great yield. And then in 1843, the first fertilizer factories were developed. But it wasn't until after the Second World War that these NPK inputs became the predominant factor. So uh, it's only been since then. So prior to that time, there have always been, you know, some places where instead of, you know, doing the slash and burn, you know, they did develop more and recognizing that, you know, more diverse systems with animals in the system and using the manure, you know, back for the restoring the soil, etc. There was some of that went on, but most of it was the slash and burn type of agriculture. So, unsustainable agriculture is not new. It's just been accelerated by technology. Well, it's been accelerated by technology and and I think also by necessity, you know, because uh, we've also had individuals along the way, you know, like Sir Albert Howard uh, in 18 in 1940. Uh, published his his first book on agriculture, and uh, he argued that the NPK mentality, as he called it, uh, was the wrong direction. In fact, he referred to it as a form of banditry because it was going to steal healthy soil from future generations, and that what we needed to do rather was to farm the way nature. If Mother Nature was doing agriculture, how would she do it? That was his question. And then he came up with these uh, concepts of, you know, he came up, instead of the law of the minimum, the law of return. You know, how do re- how you keep returning? Because in nature, there's no waste. So if you're going to do agriculture like Mother Nature would do, there wouldn't be any waste. Everything would go back into the... And then you had people like uh, uh, Rudolf Steiner in the, in the 1920s came up with the concept of managing farms as an organism where everything you use on the farm comes from the farm. And any time you bring something in from outside the farm, he indicated that was an indication of a sick farm. And um, so, so again, you had these, uh, and then Liberty Hyde Bailey later on came up with these uh, notions that we should treat uh, nature as if she was sacred. And so you do agriculture in terms of the sacredness of nature. And this was a new hold that we had to in, in develop internally, you know. So, and then, and then, of course, Aldo Leopold, who was an ecologist, not an agriculturalist, but, a, but he applied a lot of his, those principles to agriculture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for him, the key thing was uh, land health. And land health was the land's capacity for self-renewal and that conservation and agriculture should be done in terms of that concept. And then there there have always been a few people, you know, there were like uh, Rudolf Steiner's concept developed a biodynamic agriculture, which grew especially in uh, in Austria and in, and in Europe. Uh, so there have been, you know, farmers along the way that have uh, done these... Uh, you know, so biodynamic didn't start with John Jeevens, it started with... Rudolf Steiner. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Where did yeah. John Jeevens come into the picture? Well, he he became one of the pliers, you know, to okay. you know, move it forward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so, are you doing biodynamic on your farm then? Yeah, we transitioned our farm to organic back in 1982. Okay. And were you doing biodynamic immediately? 
No, we started out with organic. Just organic, and then and then, and then uh, and when I when I converted our farm to organic, I didn't even know there was such a thing as an organic market. I was doing it entirely because of the soil mm-hmm. concept, and then discovered uh, there was a, a marketer back then by the name of Michael Marcola who he started out as a farmer he was a hippie farmer <laughs> and then his father uh, had a export company uh, exporting primarily you know various kinds of equipment etc and he decided he became aware that there was that the organic market was growing much more quickly in Europe there was very little organic market back in the early 1980s in the United States so he linked up with his father's company to do export of organic grains and he found out that we were growing organic grains in North Dakota and a few other farmers that were starting to do it back then and so he developed a relationship with us to get our grain and ship it uh, to Europe and then he at one point said to me you know if you really wanted to be attractive in Europe you should go biodynamic and uh, I actually you know this former student of mine who introduced me to organic agriculture also came into my office one day and handed me his copy of Rudolf Steiner's agriculture lectures and he said I think you'd be interested in this and I read it and you know some of the things about Rudolf Steiner especially with all the preparations and stuff seemed a little weird and uh, so when uh, he student came back to get his book, he says, what did you think? And I said, well, I think there's some interesting things there, but I'm not quite ready for this, but I'm going to go back sometime and reread it some more, which, of course, I never did. <laughs> and then uh, Michael Marcola gave me his copy of Rudolf <laughs> Steiner's Lectures. And, and now reading it then after, you know, converting to organic and really doing that on the ground, some of the things that uh, Rudolf Steiner was saying in his, in his lectures began to make sense to me. So. So then we decided to uh, uh, convert the farm to a biodynamic farm. So uh, what does it look like to run a biodynamic farm? Can you define that and like, how does it, what does that look like on the ground? Well, the, the, the main thing about it and is, you know, the, the preparations have become so attractive to people within the biodynamic movement. That's usually the first thing. So if you ask somebody that's been in biodynamic agriculture, so what's this about? And they'll say, well, you have to put cow shit in a cow horn and you bury it in the ground over the winter months. <laughs> but, you know, for Steiner, the preparations were actually in themselves not useful. They were only enhancers of the natural system. So one of the key ones uh, are the uh, preparation of number 500, which is uh, for, for soil health. And um, what you do is you do take manure and put it into a cow horn and bury it in the soil over the winter months. And then in the spring, that has this rich compost material in it. And then you take that and you stir it in warm water in one direction and then stir it in the opposite direction for an hour so that it all gets energized in the water with this uh, compost that you put in. And then you spray that on the soil and it's very light uh, you know it's, it's not it's this is not a heavy kind of thing but all that it does is that it energizes the the, uh, the microbes in the soil uh, so that so that the uh, the restoration of soil health happens a little bit more quickly than it does without it hmm. uh, but if you simply put that on without compost and the law of return and all of that you know it wouldn't do you any good um, so, the, so the interesting thing about uh, 
about biodynamic agriculture is this concept of uh, you know organizing the farm like I say as an as an organism which was the key concept of Steiner's uh, and so and you know on our farm now for example we've not brought any uh, you know fertilizers or pesticides or anything in from off our farm uh, since 1980 uh, nothing yeah, everything we produce our own compost because we have livestock uh, which we feed in the winter months. We have always have alfalfa in the rotation, uh, which of course is a perennial, and we have it in alfalfa for you know three or four years before we go back to a cash crop again, and that restores the you know the health of the soil. So uh, also works to control weeds, etc. So it can be done, but that's again if we don't have all those cheap inputs that our input-intensive system has. These, and not, I'm not saying that biodynamic is the answer to everything, but it's this managing farms as an organism so that it's, instead of maximum efficient production for short-term economic return, uh, the way I like to put it is the three R's. Regenerative, so that everything you use gets regenerated in process of use. Resilient, uh, so that, uh, you know, in the face of... Uh, more severe weather events that climate change is doing how do you have a resilient system mm-hmm. and then the third part is the relationships that it's not just we can't just say to farmers you got to do this on your own you know if you're going to have a diverse a diversity of crop rotations you have to have a market for those crops so it includes the food system and the market system uh, in, uh, in the equation in, so, in the so say those three again real quick it's regenerative resilient and relationships that just sums it all up. That's great. That, yeah, I think that's uh, to me that's the, and and this is this is that cultural shift. It's from uh, you know depending on all these inputs, where it's a maximum efficient production for short-term economic return. It's resilient. Re- it, it's regenerative, resilient production based on relationships. For you know again the concept of growth being the regeneration of life on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a concept. lot different definition. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Huh. So this the social aspect of this just keeps coming back again and again. Yeah. Uh, for me, when I first heard about permaculture and just the idea of applying whole systems thinking, immediately I got interested in the social and economic applications yeah, in right. addition to the agricultural. And so slow money movement, I was talking to Woody Tash the other day, and the slow money movement's very much about that social and that sure, connection between sure. people and the idea of having the borrower and the lender face-to-face in relationship. Right. I mean, it flies in the face of everything in our modern <laughs> economic system. And so uh, that restoring of relationship seems like it's the... It's this sort of nuclear power to restoring the earth because uh, it's scary what's happening with oil and clear-cutting forests and all the pollution, but all of that is just, it's primarily a problem because it's it's disconnected us from each other. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, and this is why, for me, John Takara's new book is so important because if we've already now having this cultural transformation taking place in various parts in the world, that gives me hope, you know, that, uh, and and it gets back to, you know, one of my other heroes in in my readings have been Thomas Berry, Mm. who was a theologian, he died a couple of years ago, and in one of his books he said, we should always consider moments of crises as moments of grace, because as a human species, we normally don't make the kinds of changes we need to make until we feel the pain, mm-hmm. and then we make the changes. So we should always see moments of crisis as moments of grace. And when you think about 
moving into a post-oil economy and all of these other challenges, we're going to have a lot of moments of grace. <laughs> that perspective is really important it for is. maintaining yeah. hope. That's exactly it, yeah. yeah. And that's why I think that, again, uh, the fact that these kinds of transformations are already taking place uh, uh, on planet Earth now is, uh, is a very hopeful. So I, I see John Takara's book as, a, as an extremely hopeful book, yeah. What's the name of it again? John Takara. Another the na book. name of the book is How to Thrive in the Next Economy. Thrive in the Next Economy. Yeah. I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah, um, there's a guy I spoke with recently who's doing work in Uganda, and he started with water filtration systems doing biosand filters and then started to teach water catchment and building cisterns out of bricks and found a brick technology that didn't require fire so they right. weren't burning forests and then he got turned on to permaculture about four years into that and did it on his land and raised the water table and had a swamp and so dug it out and did a fish farm and the thing he said about it is when they start teaching just from the very beginning with the biosand filter the people see that they a very hopeless situation there very extreme in a lot of situations and all that whole region of Africa they see that they can solve their own problems yeah. and it gives them hope and right. it change, that changes everything just that one little piece that turning from hopelessness yeah. to hope really starts to move things forward yeah. and then he just keeps discovering the next technology to, to solve the next problem there and uh, so uh, we don't we have hopelessness in different ways in our modern society here although it can be pretty poignant, but as yeah. we move into the post-industrial and things yeah. get yeah. tougher, for yeah. the people who don't have an awareness that yeah. why they're getting yeah. tougher, then that hope is going to be really key. Yeah. One of the other things that I find extremely hopeful is that uh, an increasing number of the millennial generation understand all these things that we're talking mm -hmm. about. And so many of them now really want to farm, and they don't want to raise corn and soybeans and monocultures, and they want to raise food for people and have that relationship with people. And uh, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of things to be, uh, for us to be hopeful about. Again, we're going to have a lot of moments of crisis, so a lot of moments of grace, and hopefully that we will continue to have this, this cultural transformation uh, with the future generations recognizing that it's not about, you know, Paul Roberts makes this point in his book, The Impulse Society, that uh, you know, in, in our in our industrial culture, we in fact in fact got to a point primarily in the early 1960s, and where the culture we developed is all about mine and now. You know, how do I get mine for me out of my community? Uh, but that that culture is becoming increasingly dysfunctional, and so now we're starting to see this evolution of we're in this together for the common good. Uh, and we're a long way from where we need to be with that culture, but it's the beginnings are there. So, uh, mm -hmm. again, it's this kind of hopefulness. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about this next generation who are being raised. Like, Mike, I have a three- and eight-year-old. They're being raised from the very beginning with an understanding of of the whole system yeah. and rege the regenerative concepts that we're talking about right. that, you know, when I first heard about it, it got me super excited because I kind of knew all along that something wasn't right, and my, like, heart was drawn towards this kind of thing, but I hadn't really yeah. seen it the way I've been seeing it in the last several years. So what's it going to be like for people who have their whole education has been looking at the world through this whole system's glasses, the solutions that my kids are going to have yeah. and their kids? Yeah. That's exciting yeah, because exactly. I'm 
47 so you know I, it was halfway through my life before I even became aware of this and so that's a huge hindrance so they don't have that they're standing on these you know the shoulders of people who are really starting to do that and the awareness around the world of, right. of these ideas and living experiments of how can we do this yeah. I mean I keep hearing about projects that are unrelated there's just swell of these yeah, yeah. Um, these experiments and people really pursuing yeah. this so that's yeah. that's really good um, can you tell me a little bit about the gospel of consumption and maybe what yeah. the antidote <laughs> yeah. to that is well the uh, there's an interesting uh, uh, you know the, I've forgotten exactly when but it was back in the 1930s and you know we had reached a point where people in the business world recognized that we with all of our technologies etc we had reached a point where we were producing enough to meet all of people's needs so what were we going to do and Kellogg who was at that time still the head of the Kellogg company uh, he came up with an interesting idea as well if we're producing enough to meet all of people's needs what we ought to do is scale back our production and so he came up with a concept uh, for his employees at the, at the, with the Kellogg company where he went from a 40-hour work week to a 30-hour work week. And then he increased their salaries some so they wouldn't be, you know, suddenly earning so much less money. And then there were a number of magazines, et cetera, who thought, this is really crazy, you know, and what are those employees? Those employees must be really pissed off. And so they started interviewing the employees and doing stories around that. And what they found was just the opposite. All of their employees were excited about it because they now had more time to spend with their families, as they put it, more time to spend with people in their community, more time to do gardening came up again and again. But then there were a group of companies that got together and they decided that the way to solve this problem was to convince people they needed more than they actually did. And they came up with this concept of the gospel of consumption. And they literally called it that? They literally called it that, right. And then that started this whole culture of, uh, you know, that the way to improve your quality of life is to work harder, earn more, and get more, you know, accomplish more, uh, uh, you know, consume more. And, uh, and it's been a part of our culture ever since, yeah. Wow, that's... Yeah, I mean, you, you think maybe these things just developed and evolved over time, but to think that there's a bunch of guys in a room that created it to make money is... is yeah, there were. <laughs> a little really disturbing, were, yeah. right? There were a group of companies got together, and that's what they decided on, yeah. So, um, how do we, as a culture, move away from back? back to well, again, I think that this is where I think that you know, moments of grace come in <laughs> mm. <laughs> because uh, clearly this, this. I mean, uh, you know, as you know, every politician, if they want to be popular with the public, they have to demonstrate that they can show uh, increase in, in economic growth. You know, this is, this is how they're going to make the economy grow. Uh, so it's, it's, we're still totally caught up in that in terms of our general culture. But, you know, again, like, as I said, that kind of growth when you don't have all those inputs that we've used as the basis of that growth is not going to be there. So I think that we're going to move increasingly 
toward a future where it's not going to be economic growth, but it's going to be, again, the regeneration of life on Earth as our primary goal, and that's what's going to enrich our communities. And that's, again, why these bioregional economies that are emerging around the world, I think, are, uh, uh, are an insp- will become more and more of an inspiration for us. I hope I live to see a day when politicians are running on... That is their, is their, what they're going to get done. Regenerating life on Earth. Yeah, right? that, that's yeah. their platform. Yeah. I want to see yeah. that for the uh, yeah. guy running for president. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, again, I think that as you find that the, the industrial economy just doesn't function anymore, then it'll be an opportunity. Uh, we're going to need that new vision and that new culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I don't know what the percentage of the millennials are that are really already you know moving in this direction but there's a pretty significant number i would not be surprised if it's at least 20 percent and so as they grow more and become more a part of the future politicians are going to have to pay attention to that even as big food companies are starting to pay attention to it now right because the millennials don't shop there anymore so <laughs> right yeah the, the corporate uh, the corporations follow the dollar so if people and, and we've seen that with organic i mean there's right. a demand for it so they're starting yeah. to right. to yeah. provide it more and market to it yeah. exactly. tremendously which is yeah. Sometimes unsettling, but (laughs) (laughs) and redefining what that means. Well, tell me a little bit about the 50-year farm bill, because we wanted to cover that. Well, you know, Wes Jackson first came up with that, and uh, and Wendell worked with him, and uh, I was kind of on the edges of it a little bit. But uh, the basic idea here that Wes came up with was the five-year farm bill is totally politically driven. So politicians are going to create a five-year farm bill in terms of what they think is going to be politically attractive. And then each year you do that five years. And then you never get to where you need to get in terms of the longer-term future. And so Wes says, you know, it would make much more sense for us to figure out where we want to be 50 years from now and then backcast from that every five years. What do we need to do every five years in order to get there 50 years from now? Mm. And it's simply a rational way to plan, right? But, of course, in terms of uh, the world of politics today, <laughs> it hasn't really caught on that much. Although, you know, when Kathleen Merrigan was uh, with USDA, um, she actually brought about a meeting at USDA with the collection of the scientists within USDA and invited you know West to come and uh, talk to them about this and uh, I was present at that meeting and uh, there was actually a lot of agreement and even some excitement on the part of the scientists yeah I mean, this is an important way to go but uh, of course politically it you know it never you know never went anywhere because uh, again the focus now is primarily on what do we have to do in order that we encourage farmers to produce as much as possible as cheaply as possible Mm -hmm. so again it's that maximum efficient production for short-term economic return and uh, it's not where the 50-year farm bill is is, uh, useful you know so so is there anything we can do to bring that back around? Well, to some extent, there are some, some little things that are happening within USDA now where, you know, more emphasis on beginning farmers. Because, you know, if you look at, if, if you look at our, current, our current farm bill, it's not doing anything to deal with the problem of uh, the next generation of farmers. You know, if you, uh, if you look at the actual statistics, almost half our farmers are over age 60 now. 
about 30% are over age 70. Only 6% are under age 35. So we've got this huge gap, you know, in terms of the future of farmers. Where are we going to go? Well, you know, Vilsack is beginning to recognize this and, and you know, the, the investment that we're making in beginning farmers and next generation farmers is still minuscule, but at least it's starting to do that. And that's, that's not based on the five-year farm bill. This is based on, you know, recognition that we've got these larger issues we have to deal with. And I think more and more of those larger issues will emerge and then we'll be think, we'll start thinking more in terms of the longer-term future. How are we going to get to where we need to get, you know, in the long-term future rather than just five years from now. Yeah, I mean, it's so key. I mean, I've heard people talking about planning with a 500-year perspective. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do baby steps with, yeah. <laughs> with yeah. Congress, right? Yeah. Uh, but 50 is a huge, well, 50 in the realm of Washington, D.C. is 500. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and, and certainly in terms of in terms of the agriculture culture, we certainly need to... We certainly need to look at it uh, in terms of you know 500 years or a thousand years from now. Uh, but from terms of public policy, I think if we can do it 50 years from now, then so that's that that's a good sense. start. Yeah, right. Really good. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, um, so can you talk a little bit more about the difference between sustainability versus resilience and the importance of language? Yeah, well, you know, one of the really good resources in this is uh, Aaron Field and Hoffman's book uh, called Flourishing. And, uh, you know, they point out that our current view of sustainability really isn't about sustainability. It's about how to make the current system a little less unsustainable. And so we think about sustainability in terms of getting hybrid cars, in terms of changing our light bulbs, uh, you know, and, and, and these kinds. All, all of which are, you know, okay things, but they're not really about sustainability. Sustainability, as they put it, is about our relationship with nature, our relationship with each other, and even our relationship with ourselves. You know, what's important, you know, for us, what drives us, and that's what we have to become. To, we have to come to terms. Actually, with. let's walk around the corner. <laughs> We've got music being practiced in the background. <laughs> well, that's the fun thing about being at a festival, right? <laughs> that's part of our ambient sound. Yeah. So. So how how can we communicate that? Because well, again, I think that the mere fact that the flourishing book is out there uh, is uh, you know is is a good thing, and, and uh, there's more and more of the literature and uh, the culture around sustainability uh, that's beginning to do this. But again, public policy is certainly not not there yet. But again, you know, you can't if you if you're you know, like, for example, on my farm, if I thought about sustainability on my farm simply in terms of using a little greener technology, it wouldn't get me to sustainability when crude oil gets to $350 a barrel and, uh, you know, phosphorus gets to $2,500 a ton. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so then you have to start thinking about sustainability more in terms of how the, the system becomes more, you know, regenerative. That's ultimately the key thing. Mm-hmm. And then what you're really looking at is restoring the biological health of soil, restoring biodiversity, restoring genetic diversity. Those are all some of the key elements. And then it's also about relationships. So it is about not only our relationship to nature, but uh, to each other and to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's the new culture that will emerge out of that. Right. Yeah. There's no shortage of uh, 
ambient sounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much for, for talking with me. I could probably talk to you for three hours. I, I, uh, your questions are great, and I would be happy to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the, the listeners about uh, the topics we've been talking about? Well, I think, you know, for me, the... The, the really important thing now is, uh, you know, is, is to think in terms of, uh, you know, the rights of future generations. And I don't mean just future generations of humans, but the future generations of, you know, of all of life on Earth. Mm. And uh, these, this is the kind of culture that we need to, that we need to develop. It isn't just about mine and now. The mine and now culture is, is simply not going to uh, deal with the kinds of issues we have to deal with. So... If we can constantly imagine what kind of world our children and our grandchildren and their grandchildren are going to inherit, and then think about what we should be doing now so that their world uh, can be a world that uh, they can thrive in. Mm -hmm. And this is why this how to thrive in the next economy concept is so important. And I think these are... You know, these are things we can do within our families. These are things we can begin to do within our communities. And uh, I think one of the really exciting things about uh, the Land Institute is the kinds of relationships, you know, that it develops. And, and, and again, not just relationships with each other, but relationships with nature. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, so there, there are these hopeful things to sure. you know, I guess I have a second wrap-up question. Okay. Um, how has the Land Institute, since we're here, uh, how has it been significant for you? Well, you know, there's two things about it been significant. One has been that this this notion in terms of agriculture of moving away from annuals to perennials, because if again, if you if you think about farming the way nature would farm, which is also what Wes has been promoting, then uh, nature doesn't farm with annuals. You know, nature annuals are only emergency crops in nature. You know, mm-hmm. If you have an area of nature gets destroyed by fire or whatever else, uh, then there's some weeds that come up as the annuals to start the process, mm-hmm. but then eventually it gets uh, gets transformed into perennials. Yeah. And so that really made me think about you know my own farm, and I've got some perennials in terms of alfalfa, but the rest is still annuals, and I can't wait for a time when the varieties of perennial wheat are going to be available for my farm because if I don't have to plant them every year right. and the wheat is there's going to have green growing plants you know for eight or nine months out of the year even in North Dakota rather than three or four months out of the year which means there's much more of a contribution in terms of sequestering carbon out of the out of the atmosphere and all of that all of those benefits come from that and so uh, so I I am really excited about the research they're doing here and I know it's still going to take some time you know to to do all of that but they're also developing this alternative culture which uh, I think is getting more and more people beginning at least to think Mm -hmm. about this as a future yeah yeah where do you see the land Institute going in the next 40 years it's the 40th anniversary so yeah well uh, you know a lot of that I think is going to depend on I'm hopeful that 
and have been uh, encouraged that increasingly in the prairie festivals there's been this emphasis on the cultural transformation you know earlier on it was more about focused on the technology of developing the you know the the varieties of you know perennial plants etc all of which is important mm-hmm. but you know for west at, at least at the beginning it was also about a cultural revolution and that's now becoming more evident in the prairie festival you know conversations and stuff and uh, I think that you know we have about a thousand people come here now if all of us go home and take part of that cultural insight and, and encouragement into our own communities uh, that can have a, mm-hmm. you know, a bigger impact you know. again we're back to people yeah exactly. connection yeah yeah well yeah. thank you Fred it's my pleasure thank you And that was Fred Kirschman. You can find out more about him and his work at stonebarnscenter.org or by the link in the show notes. Before we get to my closing thoughts for this episode, I'd like to thank Earth Tools for partnering with the podcast. Earth Tools offers a complete line of walk-behind tractors and implements for the small-scale farmer, as well as high-quality hand tools for every gardener. Find out more at earthtools.com. What stands out for me in this conversation with Fred was how nearly 50 years ago, he was exposed to organic agriculture and saw the impacts that it could have through a personal experience. Then through his ongoing research and exposure, felt that this was something worth converting large swaths of land to, even though at the time he had no mentors or a marketplace, but decided to take those first steps. And how now, as permaculture practitioners, we have tons of resources on sustainable agriculture, on permaculture, on how to regenerate the land while we also grow food for human beings. And in that process can shift ever more towards perennial agriculture. Though conversations with folks like Dr. Laura Jackson, Wes's daughter, helped to highlight why this conversion can be difficult when working with a family farm or because of the structures that we're stuck within as end market consumers, the people who are buying food, we can begin shifting where our dollars go, wherever we're able, so that we can buy foods that actually help to regenerate the land, to become informed about the processes that are used at our farms, and start buying more organic food, participating in community-supported agriculture, and getting a share from a starting farmer, buying grass-fed beef, free-range poultry, or pastured pork. And in that way, use what we know of permaculture to create not only a sustainable food system for ourselves, but also a regenerative food system, which Fred points out with his kind of three-point model of regenerative, resilient, and relationships, a simple way to start considering the way that we're going to eat, about where we're going to source our food, how we're going to get involved and buy what it is that we currently need while we're in this period of transition from the world that was to the world that we want to be. I won't say that it's simple or it's easy, but if we're going to work on addressing our integrity gap, that distinction between our espoused values and our governing values, it's one thing every day, making one choice continually over time so that before we know it, we've made hundreds of choices that move us in this direction and that we can create systems that are more than just hybrid cars or LED bulbs, that we can move away from consumption of resources and engage ever more in the regeneration of resources and work within the limits of our current systems rather than borrowing from ancient calories and energy and water to support our lifestyles today. As always, if there's anything that I can do to help you on this journey, 
please let me know. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Or send me a letter, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.